Hi, this is Matthew. Welcome to part two of our three-part special series for Ask an Atheist Day question show special. This episode runs for about an hour and a half and then the final episode, part three, which I'll be uploading as soon as I finish doing it, it will be an hour long. Enjoy the show and as usual, comments, questions, suggestions, feedback, uh, whatever, at reasonpress.net. On with the show. guys a question first now, i've got a couple few questions here who are from named people because they're people that we all know shall i name the people who've these who these questions are from or shall i just carry on ignoring the name it, it doesn't matter i don't know when you say the names i don't know who they are you guys probably do but i don't so do you have an opinion andrew uh, only that these there are only there are multiple questions but they're only being asked by by two prior guests on the no, show th- yeah okay or uh, does it matter then well i say i say use their names these okay. are two people that i have respect for and i like to interact with with the people who've been willing to support the show by asking us questions and uh, you know I, I don't think either one of them would mind given the given the names if you sort of okay. mean so all right. Okay. Well, before we get to the previous guests of the show, we, I've got one question here from from Justin Briley. I felt rather cheeky. I emailed Justin Briley directly, and I said what I was planning this this episode, and would he or anyone in his team like to ask a question? So Justin came back the next day, said sure, and this is a question he came up with. And when I read this question out to my to my wife, who who is a Christian, she punched the air and cheered and said good on him. Um, I want to see you answer that question because she knew very well that in, in response to this question, I'd have to actually do some research and look and look at Christian stuff. So my wife was very happy that this question came in. So from Justin Briley, what's your best argument for God in your opinion? Thoughts, guys? Andrew, why don't you go first? Uh... Um, okay. I, I don't mind going first. I think the best argument for Deity is the incredible frequency with which the idea of some God shows up uh, on the maps of the world. I also think that it is the best argument against the notion that some God actually does exist. Because we don't seem to have any agreement at all about who God is or what God's attributes might be, or how to determine whether any of them are true. But this idea does seem to pop up with almost alarming frequency. It does. Um, But yeah, I I would immediately jump on the, but there's so many varieties that's got to count as evidence against. Yeah. Are you waiting for me? You can do, or would you like me to jump in? Yeah, well, no, that's okay. Uh, I mean, th- that's the question is the uh, is the question is sort of vague argument for God. What do we mean by God? And I think kind of, I mean, that's I take that to mean. Given it's from Justin Briley, assume the Christian God. Sh- sure, or he'll often talk about just theism, right? So you can argue is you know is there no God or is completely atheistic or is the Christian God the the true God? So. 
I just took it from the standpoint of like just a creator or an originator. And so my position would be, and the thing that, that I've even spoke to Andrew about that troubles me the most is the argument from a first cause or from a designer order from chaos. I, I'm realizing that this has nothing to do actually with the Christian God in particular, but is merely just the philosophical conundrum of saying that something comes from nothing. So it's really the, the knowledge gap of how do we have it? You know, why is there something rather than nothing? And why is that something have order? Or, you know, and then you extract everything from that, the uh, anthropomorphic or the anthrop, how do you say that? The, um, the anthropomorphic, why, yeah. Yes. And the, you know, the fine tuning and all those kind of things. And so I think, but you have the same exact problem with the God theory is that you, you still have to have something first. And so uh, there's a later question where I, I kind of, maybe want, we should answer it more, the, the, it's kind of the same question, uh, or I would say that that's the question somebody asks, which I think is dealt with there. And the fact that there's a knowledge gap of how that came to be, I mean, we can call it anything, we can call it energy. I've heard people say, oh, I believe in energy. I don't even know what that means. You believe in energy. Yeah, I believe in energy too, you know, <laughs> like, or uh, 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 intelligence, or like Aristotle, you know, a prime mover, right? Because he realized philosophically that you've got to have a first something that starts it all up right so i don't think aristotle uh, necessarily thought that was a, a god definitely not the christian god but that just from a philosophical standpoint you you can't have an infinite regress and so that's that's i think that's the best argument where our lack of knowledge or a gap we could just throw in that you know okay sure we'll call it a god i don't know i just i don't know that my brain can actually think of that I think of time before time or uh, what, you know, the, uh, a cause and why, why there is something rather than nothing. Yeah, there's two, um, there's two ways I want to answer this question. First, taking it seriously, because it deserves to be taken seriously. There are two answers I give. One is, um, uh, which just happened to be pretty much to do with shows that we've actually done. One is the problem of consciousness, how to explain explain that it, it's a challenge and the only is the cosmological argument or as you said the first cause argument as you quite rightly pointed out the main reason why they are arguments for a god any god is because we have a gap in knowledge then we we can't explain it so any kind of god answer or argument for either of those is instantly a, a god of the gaps or an argument for from ignorance so i don't think that qualifies anything as a convincing argument but they are the where I would go to for to answer what I think is the, the best argument for a God. The other way I want to address this question is, this question is the inverse of what's your favourite child question. I'm not convinced by any argument for God. I think all the arguments for a God score very, very low on the convincing factor. Some might be marginally better than the others, but they're all less than one out of ten. Uh, in, in terms of the, the scale that I'd rate them. So the, the equivalent for me is you line up 10 really nasty tasting flavor sweets on a table in front of me and you ask me to say, well, well which one is the one that tastes nicest? None of them taste nice. You know, why would I want to eat any of them? And that's kind of how I feel about arguments for God. I don't consider any of them particularly convincing. I want evidence. I'm an evidence man. Give me evidence. Arguments don't do it for me frankly so there are lots of arguments for god i don't find any of them particularly convincing so to ask me which one do i think is the best one out of a whole load of arguments that i think are all bad 
it's not an easy choice. Hmm. Well, what's what's the least worst? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably cosmological is probably the the one I, I I'd go for. Right. Okay. So we've got a couple of quest series of questions here from Ernest. Now Ernest came on and did a fabulous show with us on uh, on consciousness. Ernest, if you're listening, we would really like to have you back. Let's let's have a subject that we can talk about, please. You were great fun to listen to. We haven't sorted out the whole Windows versus Mac question, so we need you back to help us through through that as well. No, um, we have sorted it out. <laughs> we, we have. There's there's no actual controversy. Macs are better. It, it's like it's it's like the the controversy over evolution. There's not actually a controversy. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to are ignorant and and uh, <laughs> shouldn't be weighing in on it. <laughs> we'll sort this out in the editing. Don't worry, listeners. It, it, it's Windows. Right now, the the first question we've got here is. How can one justify the scientific method as a way of knowing without circular reasoning, given that it is based on inductive reasoning, assuming that one does use it as a way of knowing? For example, using the scientific method as value because it has achieved or predicted X, Y, and Z in the past would be an inductive argument for its value leading to circular reasoning. Uh, I, I, I'll just say that at some point you have to accept certain axioms or first principles or self-evident truths. I, I mean, for example, if we start talking about brains and vats or uh, just going to extreme skepticism, things just become crazy, you know, and ridiculous and meaningless. And why, why even discuss uh, like solipsism? The listeners are familiar with solipsism. Of I, I'm the only one that there is, and all the other minds don't exist. Uh, we might as well not even be talking to anyone. Oh wait. There, there is no one but me. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I notice, I noticed that in this particular question, it depends quite heavily on the word knowledge, right? And I just want to say that first of all, in general usage, when we say the word knowledge, we're talking about being aware of something through observation, inquiry, or some other kind of information. And so I'm not sure that that Ernest is right here uh, to say that there is that there is some sort of implicit circular reasoning here because we are actually talking about being aware of something um, through observation, which already seems to to break the sort of chain um, that that he wants us to uh, uh, that he wants us to to see here. But justified knowledge is just something that seems right or reasonable. And we justify our knowledge based on the things that we observe. So I think what I would say instead is, how would you demonstrate any other kind of knowledge that wasn't based on the scientific method? Because the implication of this question is that scientific knowledge is, is not reliable because there's some sort of circular reasoning. Okay, fine. I think the question then also has to be, naturally, what is the alternative? And I don't actually know what that is. Uh, for instance, if someone said, well, there's religious knowledge, there's, yeah, there's knowledge of Christianity. Okay, what kind of Christianity? We've got 2,000-plus uh, Christian denominations in the United States alone. So, so which version 
of those denominations is justified, and how do we know? Well, and how does that knowledge? How does that knowledge occur? Like, how is it? How is it transmitted? How does it? You know, like Mormons. My wife is the oldest of eight uh, Mormon children. They talk about the burning in the bosom, and so they'll come to your doorstep and they'll say, "Read this passage, and, and then ask God if if you have a burning in the bosom, and if you do, then you know it's true." And so, like. How does that knowledge happen? Is it something that's beyond any testability? Any is is there some other sense to where you can say, "Yep, that's actually I confirm that that's real knowledge." I don't know. I, I don't either. But there's this idea that circular re the idea of circular reasoning is that an argument concludes with the thing that it started with, and I am not at all sure that that claim of circular reasoning is applicable to science. And, and if it is, I would actually like for Ernest to write in and give us a specific case mm. um, where science uh, started and ended with the, with the same propositions and a, a demonstration that it was somehow circular. Because there, the, the very fact that science does have a predictive quality is what isolates it from circular reasoning. It doesn't end with what it starts with. It is able to predict into the future or into the past changes uh, in, in, you know, it, it might be a statistical change in, um, uh, in dissolution of some substance into another, or it might be uh, simply a rate of change prediction uh, it, it might be uh, radio, uh, radioactive decay prediction, but the, the very power of science is that its predictive quality doesn't end where it starts. And so I don't think that I'm on board with the claim that, uh, that science is, is somehow guilty of that fallacy. Yeah, I, I think what, just looking at it, I think what Ernest means is that, you know, unless you can... How do you validate the scientific method itself? Uh, and I think, you know, you have to at some point say that we rely on our senses. Uh, otherwise, if we can't rely on our senses and the tools of measurement, then what can we rely on? That's the world that we interact with, interface with. So I, th I think I agree that the question is worded bizarrely as if the scientific method is circular reason. I think it's, it's that whole relativistic, uh, we have to rely on this method that has no nothing really to say whether it's reliable in the first place. Uh, so that's a fair comment. And, and the scientific method, as I understand it, Doug, you're a practicing engineer, I'm just a programmer. So <laughs> you touch this more often than I do, but... I don't understand the, the scientific method to make any claims at all about reliability. What we have from the scientific method is a, a body of, of things that seem to be true and a method for disconfirming other things uh, when they aren't true. And we're not always right, but it is the best that we have so far. And if there is an alternative that's better, I'm open to that, and I think that because it would be claimed to interact in the system that we live in, right, the universe that we live in, and because the scientific method does have such broad appeal, if there's a claim that there is a system that is better, it ought to be amenable in some sense to a crossover with the scientific method so that it can be demonstrated.
Mm. And until there is one that has some crossover where the systems can either verify or falsify each other, I find no reason to think that there is a better method. It's not that there's not a better method. I am simply asking for what I always ask for, which is which is the evidence that says there is a method that has better predictive nature than the scientific method has had. Yeah, what is it? What are its features? Uh, and how do we know? And uh, all the same things that this this person is saying, it would be turned back around on what are you proposing? There's What's the alternative? Right. If I take that car example from earlier, right? So I tell you that I've got uh, a car that gets uh, 500 miles to the gallon, right? And that's a prediction I've made, right? I, I am I am actually telling you that you can depend on this thing. And then I hand you the keys and you depend on that. And, uh, and it doesn't get 500 miles to the gallon. It gets the usual 20 or 30, right? That sort of claim has repercussions. And we generally want to be able to test the claims that we make. This is the power of science. So I'm, I really want to say to Ernest, do you not trust in general the predictions that are made about the physical world around you? I suspect that you teach your children to look both ways before they cross the street. I suspect that when you go to buy a car, you generally look at the miles per gallon on the sales sticker, if that's something that's important to you at the time, and you trust that that car roughly gets that amount of miles per gallon because that car was tested. And other cars that were built just like it predictively will act, or your car should predictably act like the other cars in that line that were tested. And so I don't, at a core level, understand the complaint about science and prediction and circular reasoning. I, I think I want to understand it more deeply. Yeah, I'm not entirely convinced by the, the circular reasoning point. I I understand it from what Doug mentioned earlier about, you know, do you use a scientific method to justify the scientific method? And I, I'm not really sure we do that. To use uh, another phrase, by your fruits sh shall you know them. The scientific method works not because we test the scientific method on the scientific method. The scientific method works because we use it on other things and and that produces results you know we've got better tvs better medicine better cars better everything that we create because we use variations on the scientific method to improve those things and, and every single time it produces results uh, and we use it for for learning new things at the cutting edge of, of science and every single time it uses results so the methodology works when applied to other things in, in gaining knowledge so that's how we know that it works we don't need to come up with a, a way of testing it on itself and if it doesn't quite work as designed well we can change it it's a methodology you know it's not a rigid set of rules and uh, as you said Andrew if there is something better I am pretty sure that scientists will stop using a scientific method and use something better you know their interest right. is the results not yeah. the way they get the results although the way they get the results is important but whatever produces the best results is the process that they're going to use. And it's the results that get tested, not the process. Right. I mean, look, if, let's, let's just take the idea of prayer for a moment. Now, I, 
I doubt this is what Ernest had in mind. So this is not an accusation against against Ernest, but the idea that Christian prayer is somehow effective. So just taking that as as a as a possibility. If if Christian prayer was as effective as science, we wouldn't post a suggested MPG on a sticker at a new car lot with some fine print underneath that says your mileage may vary. What we would do is every time a new car came off the lot, we'd have a, a quality assurance person stand there and they would pray over that exact vehicle that just came off the line. And when they rolled it off and the prayer was answered, this car doesn't get 20 miles to a gallon, it gets 21.5, they would write that in to the little blank, right? <laughs> because, but, the, but the point is, Christian prayer doesn't work with any predictive value like science does, right? That's why we're not praying over new cars when they come off the assembly line. That is why when we send people into an emergency room after a gunshot wound, we don't pray over them to get better. We do the things that have been confirmed to work through the scientific method. And that is how we get along. We're open to better methods. And I am interested in the mechanics and details of whatever method someone thinks works better. And if I'm guilty of circular reasoning, I'm guilty of the circular reasoning that properly describes the world I live in. Well, I'll, I'll just play the uh, devil's advocate here and say um, that it is. I'm praying for you, by the way. It is reliable. <laughs> God always does answer. You just don't know the answer. It could be no. It could be 21. <laughs> you just don't know. And nor will you ever know because God is mysterious. Okay. Stop asking. <laughs> okay. I'm just. Okay. Look. It has been said. You didn't right. pray to the god of Volkswagen. That's what it is. Awesome. So it has been said that prayers are answered in three ways: yes, no, and wait a while. <laughs> or maybe. I'll give you. So yes, 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 maybe, no, wait a while. I'll give you all of those, and and I'll simply say that writing that on a tag for miles per gallon is remarkably unsatisfying. <laughs> <laughs> but it's reliable. You know, <laughs> okay, there's order to it. You just don't know what it will be. But you know you won't know. It's, uh, yeah, that, yeah, that's, you're right. What if you pray at the top of a hill? Well, which hill? You, yeah, well, the one you're about to go down. <laughs> so I don't, I wonder, I, I have a feeling because we had a good show with Ernest, and I have a feeling that he's a, a deep enough thinker to have something in mind that, that probably Doug got closer to than I did. I'm willing to readdress this if he, you know, if he, if he wants to recraft the question after this show, right? I'm, I'm willing to do this again. Yeah, a specific example would probably make this discussion a lot more interesting on this one. Moving on, would you find a deist God easier to believe than a theist God? i.e. an entity that caused the universe to exist and determine the physical laws governing the universe, but doesn't subsequently intervene in those laws. I'll jump in. Yes, that is easier to believe than the theist God. But, you know, it's like the difference between 0.5 and 0.3 out of 10. You know, it's, hmm. I, it's not moved me a lot closer to a, a threshold that I consider stepping over, but the short answer is 
yes, it's easier to believe in for me. I'll just say, I'll just ask the question, does he have better evidence than the Christian God? <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't seen one. Um, maybe, um, you know, bring, bring, me the, bring me the deist God that you want to talk about and I'll, I'll have a look. <laughs> we'll test him with the scientific method. <laughs> yes, yes. It's slippery. Here's my God detector God. here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that was... Sorry, sorry, Doug, I was going to jump you there, wasn't I? Go on, you go. That's okay, I like getting jumped. Um. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, I'm sorry, we are taking these questions seriously, listeners. Please do not mistake the laughter in the <laughs> And he only wants to be jumped in the mission. we got, we got to make it fun now. Um, yes. <laughs> we don't want it to be too boring. Uh, I would just say that, yeah, I would agree with you, uh, Matthew, that goes back to our previous question of the best argument for God to answer Justin's question. But again, the only reason is to avoid that philosophical quandary of uh, something coming from nothing. So that's, you know, the, the DS God is attractive to me in the sense of, of it just supplies this, this whatever it is, you call it what you want, that got things going, set the laws in place, you know. Okay, fine. Yeah, it's, it's, it's great because he doesn't demand anything, or she doesn't demand doesn't demand anything, uh, and it uh, it just uh, solves that quandary. That's it. Okay, moving on. If the God of the Bible made no claim to being an all-loving God, but rather to an indifferent God who just wanted worship, would that increase the chances that you would believe in such a God, albeit that that would probably make none of us likely to want to worship such a God? I'll go quickly on here yes possibly but yeah you're right i would be even less likely to worship that god so yeah i might be more prepared to believe such a god but i'd be less likely to worship such a god but again again we're, we're moving we're moving very small numbers by a very small amount so they're still nowhere near the threshold that i would consider acceptable i simply don't accept the concept of worship so doesn't get me anywhere. I, but I thought you said Apple was best. <laughs> well, okay, that's the exception that proves the rule. <laughs> <laughs> He's not worship Apple. Come on. Just come out with it. <laughs> we want to know where you stand. Uh, <laughs> seriously, I, I, am, I am in a place, you know, perhaps I'll be in a different place 10 years from now. I was in a different place 20 years ago. But I am, I am not at all convinced that the notion of worship is a, is a psychologically healthy notion. And the reason I don't think it is, is because somewhere wrapped up in the idea of worship is the implication that we are broken or that we should think of ourselves as subservient. And... I am, I am not at all convinced that those are generally healthy cultural notions. Yeah, I, I would, I'm nodding in agreement uh, mm -hmm. to, to that one. And Andrew, I, that's, a, that's a good dissemination of the attitude of worship. And yeah, I, when I was a Christian, worship was wonderful. Now I'm not, I, yeah, I just don't want anything to do with that kind of attitude. Marriage was once described by um, a college professor of mine. as uh, He said of men and women in marriage, 
Um, don't walk in front of me because I don't want to follow you. Don't walk behind me because I don't want to lead you. Just walk beside me and be my friend. And I thought, you know, that's a that's a nice sentiment toward, I think he said it of marriage. I mean, you've got to understand, college was 30 years ago. I think it was in, in regard to marriage. It might have been. Nope, that, wasn't, that wasn't Christian marriage, though, right? Because that's not. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, and, and you know, professors just make these offhand comments from time to time, right? While they're, while they're thinking about the, or the next thing they're going to say or flipping pages or whatever. That is actually my notion of all the relationships that I have. Mm. I don't want to follow you. I don't want to lead you. I do genuinely want to be engaged with you as an equal. Mm. And if a God needs me to, I'm not, I'm not even suggesting I could be an equal to a God, right? But if the God is so much bigger and better than me, he doesn't need my worship. And he doesn't want it. Well, of what possible good would having a school of catfish worship you be? Right? We, we, would, we wouldn't expect. And, and I realize that there are uh, issues where humans aren't catfish, right? But I am, what I am saying is, try to think of any circumstance where God's ways are not our ways, where the foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of man where this is a God that holds the future in his hands, that shapes the path of human destiny, and can, with a thought, eliminate all human foes. He can cause leprosy and cure blindness. He has the right to consign you to an eternal hell or give you a, a heaven of eternal bliss. Of what possible good is your worship? I argue absolutely none. Well said. I didn't write that one down. <laughs> that came from your soul. <laughs> <laughs> Serious question, though, following on from, from this, though. A, a God that creates beings, by definition, then, those beings have a subservient relationship to that God do they not so that god is within its rights how, how regardless of how you feel about it that god is within its rights to demand its subservient beings that it created to worship it if that's what it desires doesn't it matthew i can i can only say you know i've i've got a i've got a child on the way you've you've got a child i've got a couple of stepchildren from the past I don't expect this child that is on the way to worship me or to be subservient to me. Now, will I expect her in her formative years to largely behave within the rules that we prescribe? Yes. And hopefully those rules will be benevolent and justified and we will raise a socially well-adjusted child. But she is not a servant. And as far as I can tell, if she has the right to free will, 
I don't have the right to demand her worship or her subservience. Sorry, so we're not actually talking about worship, but her subservience, which I may have uh, sort of confused in the in the heat of the moment there. I agree with you, uh, Andrew. I, I just thought that that was a, an interesting question to, oh, to throw you? in. And um... No, and, and I would just echo... Uh the the late uh, and venerable Christian Christopher Hitchens. If there is a totalitarian totalitarian God uh, as is depicted in the Bible, then um, I, I wouldn't want to worship him. It would be the worst thing in the world because it would be torture. Uh, and so I would just echo what what Christopher Hitchens had said when when asked that question. One of us said not very long ago, you know, worship is an is an unhealthy relationship and i think that will be my response to my own question god that can does have that power does have that right if you want to call it that to demand its subjects worship it but it's not going to be a healthy relationship and that god should not be surprised if its created beings decide to object you know that's what's going to happen in the common language of the time if you or i or doug asked a child to worship us, we would be considered creepy. (laughs) And I think it is creepy. It's creepy for the Christian God to suggest that he wants my worship. Now, I don't believe that there is a Christian God. I don't believe that there's one that wants my worship, but that certainly seems to be an implication in in the pages of this thing they call the Bible. Which a whole nother conversation, right? We'll just stay off of that. But <laughs> it is, it is, it is creepy and icky, and it should make your skin crawl. Okay, I'm done. I'm sorry. Okay, and um, no, but you've your rent has made me think of something else. Forget the child example, pets. You know, I've got um, uh, a dog at home, and sometimes I wonder if that dog just worships all humans. Uh, with the way that she behaves towards humans and i'm wondering if if human pet is more is um closer to god human than than is um parent child i don't know if any of mm. you have had uh, pet dogs at home and seen the way they behave sometimes towards uh, their people yeah we've got two right now actually I know cats is... don't give a crap, you know, they don't yeah, worship yeah. people, but so, you know, dogs are a bit different. <laughs> no, cats expect cats to be worshipped. I don't know if we can pass on. <laughs> oh, uh, dear. We, my friend, I, might, I might have to family show, um, show that one. <laughs> well, you know, you can just mute it and it'll be like a, a bleep, right? Yeah, do the bleep. He told him to <laughs> off. <laughs> I'll put a mew in there or something. Or, oh, that's awesome. I dare you. <laughs> right. Okay. Have we, have we done that one? I think we beat it to death. Yeah. Okay. Right. Worshipped it. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. L- last one from, from Ernest. Uh, why do you think that's an unknown explanation for why there is such complex universe coming from nothing is better than the explanation that other than nothing, only a mind existed, i.e. God. And from that mind came the complexities we experience. Please excuse the word existed in this question, because by nothing, I also mean no time existed. 
and existed implies time so he's giving it a bit of apology about the use of his word existed but he couldn't think of a better word there so i'll rephrase i'll read that again why do you think that an unknown explanation for why there is such a complex universe coming from nothing is better than an explanation that other than nothing only a mind existed and from that mind came the complexities that we experience Matthew, do you want to swing at that first or do you want one of us to? Okay, yeah, I'll, I'll bat that one first. I'm, I don't like unknown explanation because if it's not known, it doesn't explain. So I, a little bit of uncertainty about that word pairing, but we don't know because we don't have sufficient evidence to explain it. So that we, we know that something must have happened, ignoring temporal language. We don't know what because we don't have any any methodology at the, or any method at this moment of being able to determine any what if there was a what and therefore it is all unknown including the explanation that is and again i don't like the word better but that is better than god because god is assuming that that is the explanation that and that we've got enough information to create god as an explanation and that all the information that we have is good enough to exclude every other possibility but we're not at that position. So any God, regardless of what God, isn't a, uh, uh, isn't an explanation because we don't have enough information to land on that. Therefore, the unknown is the only place that we can land and we have to accept that whether we like it or not. Doug, do you want me to go next? Sure. Or do you want to? Okay, so I think I quibble like Matthew with the word better in this particular question. So. Better to Andrew means more reliably descriptive of the universe we live in. And so a better explanation necessarily means an explanation that is more reliable, is can be reproduced, can be examined, can be determined to be true. As far as I can tell, the claim that a God created the universe is not a better claim. In fact, it seems to me to be a demonstrably worse claim because the very things that the claim doesn't have are the ability to examine it for its validity, the ability to uh, reproduce the claim, the ability to understand the mechanisms by which the claim is made, the ability to understand the, the powers and forces used to produce the result. It is just a claim that deliberately disguises everything that we think of when we think of a descriptive cause of, of anything else. When, when we want to understand why Ethiopian Flight 300 or 302 or whatever it was went down, the, the 737 MAX 8 just recently, we didn't posit a God. We went and found out why. And if we want to understand what, and I use this word in scare quotes, caused the universe, then we've got to work as hard at that explanation as we have worked at any other explanation because the answer is not simple. Now, we can stop this conversation right here and you can convince me just by making the claim about how God created a universe as transparent as something like the cause for Ethiopian Flight 302 crashing. Until that's done, the answer God 
is not a better answer. It's a worse one. And yes, I'm willing to wait for the evidence about how universes start. Yeah, I think to kind of further what you said, to go with the God of the gaps type thing, I mean, you can put in energy, which, uh, you know, I have friends that do that, <laughs> even energy. So magnets, giant magnets. Magnets, it. magnetism. I mean, it doesn't explain anything. It's just, oh, I found a solution. Oh, yeah, that, that sounds plausible. Well, like, demonstrate it. Like, wh what does that mean, energy? What do you mean by energy? And how does energy do anything? And how does it, you know, where does that come from? I mean, uh, the whole first cause, which is why Aristotle uh, posited a, a, a prime mover, was because of the philosophical uh, conundrum, and which is why I think, you know, that, that that's the most difficult question is why is there something rather than nothing and why, you know, but the, we, we don't get there by putting in a God. It doesn't, it doesn't actually solve the, the problem. Um, in fact, it's more complex. I think maybe we kind of danced around this, but from the, uh, the concept of parsimony uh, or Occam's razor, as it's popularly known as, it, why do you want to posit more uh, an additional assumption that is much more complex and complicated to solve your problem? It doesn't actually do any good. It, but for theists, it's a showstopper. It's, okay, I found this prime mover, and the prime mover is, is God, and the God is the God of the Bible. And, and there are a bunch of leaps there, but if I were to, I'm just going to quote a, a book I was actually just finished re or in the middle of reading. Uh, it's called um, Irreligion, a Mathematician Explains Why the Arguments for God Just Don't Add Up. It's by an author. Uh, his name is John Allen Palos. He kind of gives the, the points of the argument from the first cause where everything, number one, assumption one, um, everything has a cause or many causes. Number two, nothing has, is its own cause. Number three, ch causal chains can't go on forever, can't have an infinite regress. Number four, uh, so there has to be a first cause. Number five, that first cause is God, who therefore must exist. So the problem is, is the, the assumption one. So I'll just quote him. He says, one gaping hole in, in it is assumption one, which might be better formulated as either everything has a cause or there's something that doesn't. The first cause argument collapses into this hole, whichever tack we take. If everything has a cause, then God does too, and there is no first cause. And if something doesn't have a cause, it may be as well the physical world as God or a tortoise. He's referencing there a previous story and a myth from some island that the tortoise was the first cause. And then he goes on to say of someone who asserts that God is the uncaused first cause and then preens as if it has really explained something, we should thus inquire, why cannot the physical world itself be taken to be the uncaused first cause? After all, the venerable principle of Occam's razor advises us to shave off unnecessary and taking the world itself as the uncaused first cause has the great virtue of not introducing the unnecessary hypothesis of God. And then he, um, a couple of pages later, says placing God outside, which is what some Christians do. They'll just say, oh, God's outside of time and space, which I think he talked about here. He struggled with the, uh, the whole idea of existence and cause. And the, in order to talk about cause and effect, you have to have time and God's outside of that. So. Uh, what he says is placing God outside of space and time would also preclude any sort of later divine intervention in worldly affairs. So you either you're either placing him outside of it or you're saying, oh, somehow he can. Uh, I'm trying to remember the um, um, the mathematician that um, Briarly always has on John Lennox, where he got input. He, he, he occasionally inputs new information. You know, OK, that's convenient. You know, can't measure it. We can't detect it. We don't really know when it happens, how it happens. But he he just plugs in new information from time to time. 
Um, that doesn't do anything. It doesn't solve anything. It, it, and besides, if he's outside of time, how does he interface and interact with time? I just, I don't, I don't understand that. So, because he's uh, God. Yeah, yeah, and so that, but that's the, it's the showstopper, right? It's the prime it mover. Is, yeah. You don't have to actually provide any evidence. You just say it, and it becomes satisfying in in and of itself. Uh, I'm not convinced. Me neither. Right. Okay. So next question here is from. Uh, our other guest Dave Pegg who's uh, who was on for two shows and again Dave we did two fabulous shows with you would love to have you uh, back on again in fact literally only this week on a forum somebody complimented our show on the Kalam saying it was one of the the best uh, unpacking of the Kalam argument that they, they'd listened to so that's that's down to to you coming on and having that conversation with us Dave so Thank you, and we would love to have you on to to be challenged and, and think through something again. It would be brilliant. So anyway, you've included the link in your question to a genuinely really interesting uh, article. So your question is, Steve Pinker's recent book, Enlightenment Now, is optimistic and has data to back it up. And then the article you link to is an interesting critique of the book and presents the other side with plenty of data that Pinker didn't use and is also written by a non-Christian as far as you can tell. Just shows that you can make stats say anything you want to suppose. But the question that you want answering is, is the earth becoming a better or worse place to live overall? Now, correct me if I'm wrong, Steve Pinker's book about enlightenment now, isn't that optimistic about humanity rather than Earth overall? I've not read it, so that's a, an open question to you two if either of you have read it. I haven't read his book. I've listened to his uh, book, uh, uh, Our Better... Uh, better Angels Angel, of Our Nature. Yeah, which, you know, that's what I was thinking when I answered the question because I, I didn't read the enlightenment now, nor did I read the article. didn't have time. So, but that's what he argues in the um, Better Angels of Our Nature. Is that what it is? I can't remember the Yeah, title. I think that's the title, yeah. Uh, which is a great book. And unfortunately, I don't have the book because I just have it on uh, the audio book. But uh, so I think from, from that standpoint, um, it, the idea is the same that the, earth, that the earth is becoming a better or worse place to live. Uh, I think his argument is it's becoming progressively better, right? That's what yes, I'm, I, yes yeah. I believe so, yes. So I don't know, uh, uh, Andrew, have you read it, um, either one? Only parts of it. And, and I think I've sort of got to take exception to the setup. So sorry here, Dave, and you're a smart guy, and you may not have actually meant this quite the way I took it, but I don't think that we can make statistics say anything that we want. For instance, the statistics about the reproductive habits of goldfish, are there more male goldfish or female goldfish? Can we statistically evaluate that? It's very likely uh, not going to tell us anything about uh, the success of space flights or whether that can be statistically analyzed. And so I'm not sure that it is fair to say that we can make statistics say anything we want. I, I don't think we can. And that seems to me to promote the kind of misunderstanding that I am generally against. And to be honest, because we've done two shows together, I suspect you're against it too. So I, I don't think we can make statistics say anything we want. Now, to the, to the heart of the question, which I do think 
I agree with Matthew. It's, it's a very interesting question. Is humanity getting better? Well, the truth is, I don't know. I think Pinker makes a good case. Uh, is he wrong? The whole world and all of human interactions is a is a hard thing to to model. I think, in general, I accept that that things are getting better for uh, for minorities, for women, for the LGBTQI plus community, except under Donald Trump. Uh, and and I mean that without any tongue in cheek. We are we are going backward on some of those fronts where we have gained in the past. But I think and, just to interrupt you real fast, Andrew. Sure. That, that's the, that's the difficulty, right? Is that you have pockets of where it's like right now in this particular time. It, it, for some people, it's actually worse. But the yes. trend overall, you know, like you just said, it, obviously uh, with the, the marriage equality, that the LGBTQAI uh, community, how many ever uh, words you want, letters you want to put to it, um, is better off. I would say they would all argue yes. Yes, and that leads me to the the very last thing that I will say on this subject. Whether the world is getting better or not. It will get better or it will get worse on the back of human interaction. And that emphasizes why we need to work toward understanding each other and creating a better environment for all of us. And that in turn suggests why I am absolutely not in favor of teaching people that this world is a cast off one that is going to go away and that their uh, reactions and responses and the things they do here are of very little consequence because there's this thing called eternity being offered up by some God that cannot be demonstrated and he's going to wipe away all your tears and all of this stuff that was here really doesn't matter. And so whether the earth is getting better or worse, and by earth here I'm, I really just mean human interaction on earth, whether those are getting better or worse, the one thing that I'm willing to stand on is proposing heaven doesn't help it get better here. Yeah, and I, w I would just kind of go further in, uh, with your little being on a soapbox and, and <laughs> another rant. Yes, yeah, rant. Something else to continue that that uh, rant is that preaching, you know, God or a religion uh, or or some sort of other form of what I would just call tribalism. I think what we're finding in the U.S is just more tribalism. You have political tribalism, we have religious tribalism. We're getting that more and more and more, which is why we're having Brexit, why we're having uh, things like, uh, um, you know, the Gilets Jaunes the, in France or, or, or uh, the, the Trump administration here, with all the division. Uh, I think the statistics show that that the, the, uh, uh, the division be between groups in the US is, is at its height right now in the, in the past years. And it's, it's all, Due to tribalism, uh, in in whatever form you you want to talk about, and I think religion just is another way of perpetuating that tribalism. And so, I would just continue uh, what you were just saying is that 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 it's no solution to have religion or have Christianity in order to make the world better, or just to say it's gonna you know it's, it's gonna go off the rails anyway. So let's just you know uh, look forward to eternity because uh, that's really what matters. Uh, and, and then, you know, at that point, if you're wrong, then what? You've you, you've wasted the one life you have, and you know um, that's no good either for uh, human uh, flourishing. So uh, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> it's a complex one, and I I don't know how to answer the simple part of the question: Is Earth becoming 
better or worse because the the article that Dave linked it's on a website called opendemocracy.net it's not a website I'm familiar with I don't know if there's any political uh, association with um, with this or, or anything like that but but that aside it's got interesting graphs on it you know and it includes things about just global issues that we're worried about co2 level rise sea level rise um, heat sinks in the oceans ice pollution species decline big issues uh, that are aff- affecting the planet and these are planetary effects you know these affect the world world over and of course plastics in the oceans you know these are all genuine issues uh, that we need to worry about when we but then again if, if we look at that we've got on, on the flip side of that the planet earth 2 series done by david attenborough which uh, did the that one special on on the uh, plastics in the oceans really sparked a lot of impact and a lot of um, consumer response sales of bar soaps in the uk have, have rocketed because people have gone hang on a minute i need to be more conscious about what i buy so people are buying bar soaps because there's less plastics associated that so they're not buying scrubs and they're not buying plastic pushy things with liquid soap because they're being very conscious about what they're buying you know this um, pressure for microbead and things like that so humans are becoming more conscious about their impacts on that so there's, there's a delay between uh, uh, action and, and response and then the response to the action you know mm-hmm. us stopping buying plastics doesn't negate all the plastics that are in the environment yeah they continue to be there it's going to take two or three or more generations for that to make an impact and i think we're at that crossover where we're realizing the impact and we're still arguing with those who are struggling to realize the impact but the effect in the environment are are still climbing and so it's which slope is uh, overcomes the other so i don't know how to answer i want to say better but I do worry about the future for my daughter. You know, what will the world look like when my daughter's my age? And maybe I'll still be around. I don't know. I want it to be optimistic. I, I really do. I think the human race, for the sake of the human race, it needs to be optimistic. But I am concerned and I don't know. I want to say better, but I think there's a bad balance. There's a, there's a bad weight on the other end. And I maybe it's it's, for me, it's too close for me to, be utterly convinced either way which is quite sad really because i really want it to be better yeah now i think like you're matthew you're highlighting is that what are we measuring so if uh, pinker is measuring uh, for example uh human uh interaction uh human like we talked about uh women's blacks homosexuals lgbtqai if we're talking about that then happiness or flourishing or whatever you want whatever you want to measure uh, but if you're talking about the environment, those things are much, much slower and, and take years and years, which is why I think that it's so easy for somebody to be a climate change denier. You know, they can look at the statistics. Yeah. And I talked to someone the other day who was at a uh, one of our national labs, and he was uh, kind of making fun of the fact they had all these programs for environmental research. And I said, don't tell me you're a climate change denier. He says, no, uh, I'm not a denier. I just, uh, we don't know all the effects. And so it was the kind of the God of the gaps type thing where it's like, well, I don't know all the effects. So therefore humans apparently aren't c- causing this. And so it, it was an, an easy way to out of saying, I, 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 you know, I don't, I don't have any responsibility for it. And so I think that's the problem is that one, you can measure maybe is quicker to measure and easier to measure. The other, if you're, there are different scales and there are different things you're measuring 
So I think it's fair uh, if, if this site is really about just uh, environmental. My wife and I are always every night watching uh, David Attenborough narrate uh, Our Planet, which is a great show. I highly recommend it. And a friend of mine, a Christian friend of mine, kind of quit, quipped about the fact that, oh, it's a uh, propaganda for uh, um, for climate change. <laughs> it's, oh. Yeah, it's good. You know? <laughs> yeah. I think you're joking. <laughs> the problem I have with that is, okay, by all means – question the science quite science should be questioned and let's mm-hmm. look at let's investigate it i'm i'm all, all good for that so long as you're honest and it's questioning however questioning the science is not a license to pollute let's just stop polluting anyway you know right. there's a benefit to not polluting so let's just not pollute forget, forget about what you think about the environment about science just don't pollute yeah. you know and, and I'm, so wholeheartedly agree and and i want to say also what is the repercussion of pinker being wrong so so let's say that stephen pinker has his head firmly ensconced in something that shuts out reality (laughs) whatever that might be uh i i don't think that's the case but let's say it is so what are the repercussions of that does that mean we give up does does that mean we acknowledge that it's uh, an unwinnable fight? Does that mean we turn away and say, well, uh, human anthropogenic climate change doesn't matter? Does that mean that we cede a, a dark and horrible future to our children? Do we teach them to uh, believe in the Easter Bunny and Santa Claus and, and other magical stories? You know, do we or do we decide to gain some traction on these things and make Stephen Pinker right? Because truly, I don't care whether he's right or wrong. It doesn't negate my personal responsibility. And I don't think it negates anybody else's. Well said. I, I would ask Dave, uh, our, our uh, questioner here, what he's aiming at. And maybe he doesn't have an ulterior motive. But if we're to say that, okay, he didn't deal with this other data that shows the opposite side or the other side, the environment, if that's what he's saying, so what you know what what are we talking about here what's what how does this have to do with christianity and if he's right that we are getting better on the interaction between human side and we're doing really poorly on the how do we treat our planet side so what you know what do we do like and like we're talking about here like uh, my wife was just saying a little bit how, what can we do what can little me do you know i can't change it so not that she's saying let's go throw any it all away and be in waste but like it's this desperation of you know the little i do or the buying the the bar soaps instead of you know, those are things that each and every one of us can do um, and it's not that hard no those little things aren't that hard and um, enough people doing them it's going to make a difference what was there was announcements this week guinness the brewer guinness who they make other beers besides guinness have announced that all of their packaging for cans that is going to be plastic free they're no longer going to have those plastic rings holding their cans together they've looked into getting a a different biodegradable product to hold their cans together and again it is and uh, you know i've been looking at these rings and plastic rings around drinks cans has been known to be a problem for for a number of years and i'm glad someone has has got out there and announced it and i'm pretty sure the other drinks manufacturers are going to to follow suit and it's consumer pressure that that's done this this is people changing their 
buying mm. habits and this is how we're going to do do change and so this is evidence for the world becoming a better place because consumer pressure is a real thing you know and it's no longer we'll buy what we're told to buy it's now actually we'll buy you you will make us what we want to buy please right good speaking of those little rings around six packs we uh rarely rarely buy six packs here but on the occasion that we have them we take those rings and uh and, and cut them up you know they're they're supposed to be responsible for small fish dying and all, and all that sort of thing there, there are other issues but so we take them and cut them up uh so they're not easily tangled right so they're they're just yeah. little small things that don't they don't have openings they're just little pieces of plastic of course the problem is you find out that that has a repercussion too, right? Because then mother whales wash up with 40 pounds of, of plastic in their, uh, yeah. in their stomachs. And, uh, and so I think I, I want to say this about climate change and, and, and not just the heating of the earth, but our impact on the environment generally. If we weren't, if we weren't producing billions of tons of plastic a year, would we have whales dying? from digesting multiple pounds of plastic? Well, the answer is obviously no. So at least in that one way, there's a measurable change that we can make that does good because whales occupy an important part in ocean ecology, right? And, and so even if you don't believe in, in anthropogenic climate change or, or you, know, you, think, you, know, you think this thing is cyclical and the earth is gonna come back and, and we're not actually having an effect, well, actually, we can track the the effects we're having even on small scales. And even if you don't believe the big ones, we have a responsibility to acknowledge the small ones. Anyway, sorry, I, it's a hot topic for me, like everything yeah. else, apparently. And <laughs> the the advantage of this topic is this is a topic that Christians and atheists and uh, everyone in between can stand shoulder to shoulder and campaign for together without those other disagreements getting in the way. Mm. Yes. So let's do that. And yeah. uh, th thank you for the subject, Dave. Genuinely, thank you. Yes. Okay, so now we're on to the, the last list of questions. I've got various questions I've picked up from d different places and I've dumped them all here. They're all short questions the answers may be variable length so let's go for it and see what happens these are all from christians do you think god and related terms soul heaven hell divinity etc should be eliminated from our vocabularies or that it's fine to keep it but it should be reducible to more natural properties for example illusion psychological comfort emotions etc intriguing question i'm not particularly bothered to be honest i'm I have no in no desire to drive this kind of of change language changes and it changes or, organically and i'm sure language or change results in areas around these words at some point in the future i don't think i can do anything about that and i have no desire to do anything about that Interesting question there. Yeah, I'll, I'll just say that I, I don't know the impetus behind the question, eliminating the terms, I don't know why, but at the same time, I do think the terms that, that this questioner chose to put are, are all terms that 
have no evidence other than they're in some holy book somewhere. And so if you want to talk about them and you want to define them, then we can talk about them. And I don't know the natural properties. I don't know what you mean by that or for illusion, psychological comfort. I mean, so if we're just talking about human psychology, it's probably more useful um, or beneficial to use terms that maybe um, cognitive psych- psychology uses rather than soul or heaven or, you know, I don't know what those uses would have in that in that sort of discussion. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I don't know what uh, the, the terms add about the discussion, uh, but we can talk about them, and I don't think we have to eliminate them. Let's, let's talk about them. You show your evidence, and we'll talk about the evidence, and, and we'll go from there. Also, we know what the words mean, and there's, yeah, so why, why muddy the waters by changing the words? <laughs> That's true. So I found the, the part of this question reducible to more natural properties. The intriguing part of the question. With that, I will simply say again, I want to believe as many true things and as few false things as possible. In this, Matt Dillahunty and I are in lockstep, and I thank him for coming up with with such a pithy phrase packed with meaning. If you are suggesting that these things exist, then all I'm saying is I'm not asking you to reduce them to something that is more simple than what they are. However, you are responsible for demonstrating that they exist. At the moment, heaven, hell, soul, sin, I don't, I, I am in lockstep with, with my co-hosts. I don't see any evidence for them. I don't know what you mean by them being reduced to more natural concepts i don't know of any concepts that aren't natural and if they and and if you're saying but these concepts are the ones that are not natural okay fine then you've got to demonstrate that they exist even if that demonstration is beyond natural and so now there's a natural tension between well i can't prove that they exist because they're not natural okay well exactly and so we're at loggerheads, right? You're you're making uh, claims about things that that, uh, at least based on the way the question reads, can't be demonstrated. And if you want to take those things and throw them into the fiction section of the library and keep talking about them, I'm a great supporter of fiction. I love fiction. I can name hundreds of fiction authors that I love to read. But don't ask me to confuse your fiction with my reality. Awesome. Okay. Are moral values objective? Right. Shall we go all together now? One, two, three. <laughs> no. Matthew, I cheated here. I read Doug's response. I am not going to say another word. Oh. He's I, I I didn't want to spoil it, so I didn't read Doug's answers in advance because I, it was going to... Oh, goodness me, you've really organized your list of answers. Oh, my <laughs> word, Doug. That, 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 that's a lot of pressure. I don't know that I want to go now. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, well, have no, you written you an essay? Have you written an essay to that one? More, this more. is one that's near and dear to my heart. Because oh, it's... my word. Oh, my... And you did write Yes. <laughs> Hang on, we're, we're going to have to write a letter to Atheist Headquarters about you. 
<laughs> yeah, your your card's revoked, dude. You can no longer get the first <laughs> Oh, I'm gonna have so much fun reading your answer. My, well, you've written a book. <laughs> oh, I would like God. to write a book. In fact, that's my goal is to write a book on this because the the moral argument is like Justin Brierley's like go to favorite. Like you know, it's his favorite argument, and he talks about it probably on every single episode. So for me, it's. I, I I don't like the way that everybody ends up on saying no, they are relative, because I I don't I don't think they are, and it, and and it goes back to this what we've talked about about a lot is the definition of terms. What do we mean by objective? That's a big question because objective we usually use it in a Platonic sense of out there somewhere that we go look for it with a, a, a detector of of uh, objective te- detector. I read a, a really good book by an author that he's not a very good writer, really. Uh, I'm trying to remember what his name what his name is. I think I have him in my notes somewhere else. But uh, go, go ahead and somebody uh, say something more about okay. <laughs> what we're talking about here. So the reason I say that morality, uh, and, and I actually prefer the word ethics because I find it slightly less loaded, than, than the word morality, I think they're largely interchangeable, so I'll use ethics from here on out. I think ethics are largely not objective. Uh, in fact, if they were, I think there would be more agreement. And so I don't find that that human ethics are, I find a lot of suggestions that they should be objective. And there are a lot of standards by which they're supposed to be judged. Let me offer just one. Recently, the International Conference of Methodists, I don't remember exactly what the group is, is called, but they were they gathered together to talk about uh, admission of LGBTQI people into Methodist churches and how the church should respond to them, right? And the reason they had to have a conference where they gathered several hundred people to talk about this issue is because they didn't agree. Now, Here's how badly they don't agree. Some Methodist churches are considering pulling away from the United Methodist tradition and going their own way because they think the central organization is wrong. And let's be clear, the central organization voted to maintain the traditional biblical stance that the LGBTQI plus community has something wrong with them. They should be ostracized or whatever the central church thinks that should be done to them, right? But whether that is an objective standard or not, I don't care whether the answer is yes or no. The problem is we humans are subjective creatures. And because we are subjective creatures, we can only make our best guess at any single thing that we are trying to determine. And sometimes we're going to disagree. Now, if you think you're objectively right, you've got to do better than say, the Bible says this particular thing, like homosexuals deserve to, burn, to, to burn, deserve to burn in hell, Romans 127. Because here's the thing. There are plenty of other people who will say you're misreading that verse. And so objectivity means more than just saying, I found this verse in the Bible. It means a way to determine objectivity beyond a statement. I have this friend, his name's Matthew Taylor. He'll tell you that arguments are not evidence. And so if you expect me to believe in your objective standard, you got to bring it around and have it measured. I think That's I need it. to meet your friend. He sounds really wise. <laughs> he's, a, he's a pretty cool dude. I, I, I like 
I, I'm going to keep hammering on that because I really like it. I don't know. This is like the fourth time I've said something in the show. <laughs> no, I, I, and I think you can measure it. This is where I would uh, I would go back to a quote from his book. Is The guy's name is Mortimer uh, J. Ald, Ald, Adler, and his book is called Ten Philosophical Mistakes. And so one of the chapters, he takes up the, the moral argument or morality uh, moral values is the chapter, uh, the title of the chapter. But what he actually talks about is he says, okay, subjective is that which differs for you, for me, and for everyone else. Uh, in contrast, the objective is that which is the same for you, me, and everyone else. Okay. Uh, and then relative is that which varies from time to time and alters with al alterations in the circumstances. In contrast, the absolute is that which does not vary from time to time and does not alter with alterations in the circumstances. So he defines relative, absolute, subjective, objective. Okay. So there are ways to measure uh, objectively that what is what is good for me is good for you. And so what he he's a terrible writer. I'll just say that up front. He he's really hard to read. But I went through and I kind of tried to just graph out or or list out and chart out uh, in a in a kind of a list way uh, of what he's what his argument is. So he, he makes one argument. Um, there's another argument which I believe is an argument from nature, from primatology, psychology, and sociology. So his is is the it's a philosophical argument that comes from Aristotle. And so what he does uh, in order to develop and actually get an ought from an is, he talks about the the there's there are three points or three kind of uh, ways of attacking it. Number one is that uh, he identifies a good with that which appears or is considered to be good to the individual, uh, and this is one of the errors he deals with. It's a philosophical error by Spinoza. But the solution is to make a distinction between two different kinds of desires. So humans have, and this is where Aristotle comes in, humans have natural desires or needs. And this is, this, these are what are inherent to human nature, thus shared by all. So if we go back to the argument of uh, um, what is subjective and what is objective, this is what objectively needed or, or shared by all. The other one is acquired desires or wants. Uh, these differ for each individual in accordance with the, their desires and temperament, differences in circumstances, upbringing, that type of thing. And then you have to also distinguish between goods, uh, apparent goods, things that appear good to us simply because we consciously desire them, and real goods, those things that all of us need by nature need, whether or not we consciously desire them or not. Sorry, that's apparent goods versus what? Real goods. Oh, thank you. The, the real goods. These are things that, that we, we all need, like food, water those type of things. And knowledge is one of those, I think, that falls in the real good that people might argue that, no, we, we actually don't, but we do need those as well. Or you could maybe go to the hierarchy of needs. And uh, I just wrote Maslow's hierarchy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Th those, th that's a good one as well. Um, but you have to distinguish between the, those natural uh, desires or the need, the need, needs and wants and apparent goods and real goods, number one. That's the first step. The second step is that you have the problem of getting an ought from an is. That is a philosophical challenge that was issued by Hume. Uh, and the solution to that is the formulation of self-evident prescriptive truth to combine with a descriptive premise. So it's impossible for us, for example, to think that we ought to desire what is really bad for us or that we ought to desire what is really good for us. So they go back to real goods, right? 
because that's inher- inherently contradictory or internally inconsistent. Um, it makes no sense. So that's the second problem. The, the third problem that you need to solve is the prescriptive or odd statements cannot be true and false. And so this is a philosophical error by 20th, 20th century non-cognitive ethics proponent. So the solution to that is that you uh, have to identify a certain or uh, special kind of truth appropriate to prescriptive truth. So pr- and these are practical judgments made true when they conform with right desire, seeking what we ought to desire or seek, natural desires, needs of real goods. Prescriptive judgment has practical truth if it expresses a desire for a good that we need. And so, so those are the three kind of approaches that, that you have to overcome. And on this last one, um, if the only kind of truth is to be found is descriptive, like is statements that conform to the way things really are, then prescriptive or ought statements are excluded from the realm of what is either true or false. So that's the, that's the argument in a nutshell. If you maybe see it written, it might make more sense. Me just reading it, it's difficult to probably grasp, but maybe you can put that in the show notes. <laughs> but that, that is from Aristotle. And so that's why I think from that standpoint, he, he does a good job, even though it's, he's hard to read, th- that from a philosophical standpoint, using Aristotle and, and the distinction between uh, real uh, and um, between needs and wants and apparent goods and real goods, that all humans, you can demonstrate that all humans do not want to be harmed. Now, there's sadomasochism. OK, that, that, that's an exception within that realm that people like to be harmed and but that's for them is pleasure <laughs> so so let me ask a couple of questions because yeah. I, so i was taking some notes as we uh, as we were going along here and it seems to me that part of the problem concerning a real good right to be distinguished from real goods in in the sense of uh you know products on store shelves or whatever right but so a real good in our view, the, the three of us, would be extending the same courtesies about marriage to the LGBTQI community as are extended to heterosexual couples, right? I think we would contend that that is a, a real or substantial or measurable good for human society. That's right? an apparent good, though. That's the problem. Is That's not a real good because that's not something we need by nature. So sex does not fall within uh, the realm of this. Oh, uh, I'm, I'm, so by marriage... You mentioned that uh, marriage is about, and I'm not talking just about sex. Right. And in, in your statement, I'm specifically thinking about what you said about you and Nicole. We all have a need for a sense of community. Yes. And, and marriage is that bond between two people that is, okay. yeah. in some sense, the best expression That's of fair. that need yeah. for community. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, that seems to be. Maslow's uh, hierarchy of needs, that is a, a connection, is, the, is one of the highest. So, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Okay, no, I, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not trying to overdo this, right? So yeah. if I if I go wrong, feel free to 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 square it. Mm-hmm. But if that is the case, Christians will say, okay, but that doesn't do society a real good because God is out there and He has prohibited this kind of relationship because, in fact, it doesn't do a real good. To society, so I'm not. I'm not suggesting that this that you can't be right. But what I'm saying is, how does this claim of objectivity actually get us to the position where we can agree about what is objectively good? Because Christianity has been trying to do this with their system of good for two thousand years, 
And what they came up with was uh, 2,000 denominations in the United States who haven't agreed, even though they claim there's an objective truth. So does this, in your view, get us away from, can, can we actually use this argument, not only to say that there is something that is objectively good, but to pass our arguments through this filter and determine which ones are in fact good? I, th I think so. And say, no, this is what God says, all we need to do is say, no, this actually doesn't make for human flourishing with connection. We, it, it tells these people they're not allowed to be connected with those they choose to be connected with, and, and somehow to claim that is a real good. It is not a real good. In fact, it, it is totalitarianism. It is, it's, it's terrible that you would want to police that. And so I would say, yeah, I mean, if, if people could agree what, what are real goods, and I think that maybe that's the sticky wicket, right, is, is what are real goods. And that's where I think the next part of the argument from nature, from studies in, in, with primates, for example, that Franz Duvalls does, uh, you can look on YouTube and see the studies that he does with the capuchin monkeys. He's in Atlanta, not far from here, at uh, a, uh, a center that you can't visit, I, very sadly. I tried to I email them and ask them if I could visit, and they mm -hmm. said <laughs> um, I've seen the Capuchin uh, studies. They're interesting. Yeah. Have you seen the in the videos where, you know, they, they give, uh, so for example, here's an example of, of, of one thing that I would say is shared between us and, and all the primates uh, is the idea of, of fairness or justice. And they give these capuchins, one of them, a cucumber, which they like normally. They, they, if they're all given, capuchins are all together and they're given cucumbers, they will eat them happily. But when you give one, in one cage, a, a, a cucumber and the other one, grapes, the one that didn't get the grapes goes nuts and does visibly what you what any fair human being would would say is get pissed off and starts to protest and so these type of things they can and they've done studies with primates they've also uh people like paul bloom and jonathan Haidt uh, or Haidt, i don't remember how you pronounce his last name they do these studies on with psychological studies and sociological studies on what uh, all uh, societies and with studies with small children and, and, and even babies, they show that there are certain uh, big categories to where we all um, share. Uh, and those are, I would boil them down to three, but um, I think Jonathan Haidt has five, Paul Bloom has four, and then uh, Franz Duvall, who's a primatologist, has two, which is reciprocity or fairness and empathy or compassion. Mm -hmm. And so if you take that argument and say, okay, we can actually go through and figure out what are real goods and what do we share, the other ones uh, are more difficult. This is where I think why where religion comes in is religion is just a heuristic or a shortcut. That, so we don't have, it's too hard to sit and talk about and debate what, are, what is a real good, you know. And so we take shortcuts because it's just easier to be in tribes and say, well, you know, my God told me what's good. I don't have to try to explain it to you. <laughs> we don't have to discuss it, you know. All of these, so I think another part of my problem here, um, I had this discussion with a, a fellow named uh, Phil Hopper, Scott Hatfield. We were talking about uh, objective ethics. And so I am willing to grant that there is, first of all, a high degree of concurrence may not be objective, right? And so we have to be careful about saying that just because we all agree that would be objective. Now, right. I am willing to say that I think there's a category of thing where you are right. 
not feeding someone, not feeding an infant, for instance, is objectively bad for right. the infant, right? Mm -hmm. And so the converse of that should be true. Feeding an infant is objectively good, as, as long as we're not um, feeding them fertilizer or, or you know, feeding, you know that as, as long as we're real good and not going to harm them and not too much. <laughs> right. But I think there's a difference between talking about the needs of a human body mm -hmm. and talking about ethical treatment between ourselves. Yes. And so I'm willing to accept provisionally that you're right, but I would want to dig into this a lot deeper, if you see what I mean, because there's a lot of work to do here and we don't have time to do it. You know what I mean? So, well, so maybe problem. you're right. Yeah. That's the problem. I think that's why we shortcut to all these other things or to say, well, it's, it's relative. I, I don't, I'm not convinced that it, that it's relative. I think in a lot of ways it seems relative, but I think that if we were to look at w what really all humans see as, as, as good for us collectively as a species, I think that it's, it's a small subset. I think it's really all the things that we learn, we learn in kindergarten. You know, and there's a book on that <laughs> that says everything I need to learn, I learned in kindergarten. And it's just plain ice, but you know. Let's just pretend that there is some objective value in ethics. Let's pretend that, um, so I know some of those things, like we learned to share, right? We learned not to hit each other. So I did read your notes and I, and I was intrigued by them. But human ethics seems to cover more than what we learned in kindergarten. And so I'm, I'm still not sure that the total span of human ethics could be considered objective? Well, I think if you boil it down into categories, it is, on the one hand, real simple, but on the other hand, when you get into the more difficult dilemmas, it makes it difficult for us to boil it down to those basics. So, But I think we can do it. I just think we don't want to. I think we, we it's very energetic. There are two modes that we... Um, that uh, uh, a lot of uh, social psychologists and evolutionary psychologists talk about, either fast, slow, hot, cold, or, or I like the, the expression um, automatic or manual. And it's much easier to, to operate in that automatic or the em emotional kind of intuitive realm. Uh, but if we have to get into the manual mode where we have to really kind of get down and dirty and, and have these hard discussions, it's just to, to no, either one, nobody has time. Two, uh, we don't have the patience. Or, or, or a lot of people are just trying to feed themselves, you know. And so sure. obviously, you know, it's like the philosopher kings—the whole idea of, of, you know, of having philosopher kings. Like we, we don't, we don't have leisure to have all that time to think about this stuff. But we've got a lot of people doing it and trying to do it. And I think, uh, you know, I, I just think that the politicians and the, the people in the powers that be don't want to, don't want to listen to them. And there's one more big issue. I suspect that Matthew's got this one in mind, if I, uh, if I know Matthew very well. And that is going to be that in the heart of the Christian argument, the claim of objective good is sourced by an objective standard, right? So God passes this thing down, right? And I think that the Christian objection would be, it would be hard to take these propositions that I wrote down while you were talking and claim that those were a reasonable source for objective good. 
if you see what I mean. Sure. For example. Well, so we talked about marriage being extended to homosexual couples, as a for instance. Christians claim an objective source, and they claim that that objective source can only be good, right? It's not only good, it can only be good. It somehow collapses the urethra dilemma, right? And so this set of premises, when it produces some result, if you just formulated some other set of premises some other way, and you claim, but yeah, those are the ones that produce objective truth, you would have to be able to compare the two arguments. Now, I don't have an argument in my mind. I don't have another set of premises that I would claim would make objective truth, right? But if we just say that there is another argument like Christianity that claims objective truth, and their claim would be, you know, but, you know, it's one man, one woman, and that's why, because God's the source. Well, so we need a way to compare them. And, and that would be true for any claim of a system that produces objective truth. And because objective would mean that you can compare it against other systems and find out which one is right. And otherwise, you don't have objective. You still have subjective. Yeah, I'm not sure from that that I follow really exactly what's being said there. I mean, uh, if I were to come across a Christian that said that, I would say, well, all you got to do is measure, measure the, uh, the results. And you can find that, that that is not conducive to real good, to fulfilling. You know, I, I would say that all you got to do is look at the result, you know, of what that created in society to have this, you know, mm. Christians who know they're gay but are not allowed to say it, and they, you know, are going suicidal because they've got this stricture on them that says no, you know, this this thing that's above them that's, you know. So I, if you were to use that yeah, as but a, sin, sin is the um, and the and broken humanity is the, the Christians yeah. get out of that one. You yeah, know, yeah, the, 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 the negative effects of that isn't because they're being denied something that they should be allowed to do. The negative effects of that is because they're disobeying God's moral law. Yeah, right. Yeah, so the, that, the issue that. there is what is the claimed proper output of objectivity? What is the, so for any, for any argument of, of objective truth, it's arguing for some truth. Now you and I will agree that the way we have get, the way we get to the best objective truth in some sense is by what is best for human flourishing. So I think you and I could agree there, right? And, and then any set of premises that have as their output the most number of people flourishing is the thing that we would agree was objectively the best. But that, that is where we might have some other set of premises where we would claim objective truth, but the goal is not for human flourishing, the goal is for the most souls to go to heaven, or the goal is, um, you know, for the most people to uh, to have the best job, or to produce the most children, or you know, whatever. Yeah. I don't know. Whatever I, there is. Not a, I'm not a utilitarian. I'm not married to that. I think it it's it's good for some cases, but I don't even know if what you said first if that's really a way to measure it. 
that's what I think it's, you have to maybe zoom in closer. You can't do calculus on the best for the most people or whatever, because then you could have 10% of the population is enslaved for, you know, then you their calculus works out. I mean, you, that's why you have to look at it on an individual level. No, no one person is is less important than than another. Loudly agree. And so uh, that's why I don't think you can do that. Utilitarianism doesn't really work, I don't think, practically speaking. But I think so, we can kind of get, we can grind down to a few things that are objectively true. I'm not saying everything we choose. Uh, I think there are things that we think are maybe ethics or, or um, morals or, or values that are really just opinions. And then, so maybe if we boiled it down to two, two different sets of things of, those things that are cultural or those things that are not really hum- real goods, then I think is probably most of what we're talking about is apparent goods, things that appear good to us simply because we consciously desire them, not things that we actually need. So I am going to read this. I am going to read your notes here more closely, and maybe we can come back to this again because I don't know whether I'm convinced or not. I need to. Uh, we need to come back to this again. We need to yeah. do the three of us on uh, a full show, on. a full show on on this one only. Uh, yeah, because yeah, we clearly, sort of just did one show. Because <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> clearly there is a big bucket to uh, to un- unpack and uh, and yeah, swill out. Yeah, I'll just I'll, I'll <laughs> leave my thing there, but. <laughs> No, you, this. I thought we were going to spend like 14 seconds on this question and, <laughs> and, and move on. And, <laughs> and, and that's because I hadn't read your notes, Doug. And uh, I if, if, if I'd read your notes in advance, I think I might have deleted them. <laughs> <laughs> you might have been right to do that. <laughs> no, we, we I love this. We, we definitely need to come back to this because, and when I've got le- less, less, Brand, a smaller glass brandy at the yeah, beginning yeah, of the go. evening as well, because I'm going to need to be firing on all cylinders <laughs> for this for this one. Just one comment from me um, before I try to to move us on. Uh, there does seem to be a bit of um, what's I'm trying to think of the the right way to phrase this. Um, yeah, the, the the Christian stance on this seems to be there are rules which are given which we need to follow, mm-hmm. whereas the stance that the three of us are taking, even though our answers vary a little bit, is what are the effects of the actions that we do? And right. let's change the actions that we do so that the effects of those actions are, are, are better for people. So those are two yep. very, very different approaches to to the same problem. Yes. One is simple, simplistic rather, and the other one is extraordinarily nuanced to the point of being really really complex Mm-mm. yeah yeah for sure that's uh yeah but i think i think we do in in, in spirit agree on the approach uh, i just i'm not comfortable with the um subjective uh we vote type thing and i know that's not what either of you are saying but it always comes back to nazi germany right if everybody thought it was moral and good then it would be good right uh, no, it would not. I think that we could all point to it with certain given certain parameters and say that was wrong, regardless of whether everybody thought it was right. Yeah. OK. Yeah, we absolutely need to get you back on, Doug, to, to do this one. Uh, it'll be a fabu- fabulous uh, show. To do. And hopefully we could get a 
Christian uh, either on as well or to do a, do a follow up. If you if you're a Christian and you want to talk to Doug on this, please please I implore you get in touch. It will, we'll make sure that it's a fun show. We really will. 